Chapter Sixteen of Alice Adams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jeanie. Alice Adams by Booth Tarkington. Chapter Sixteen. He meant his own transgression and his own way, for Walter's stubborn refusal appeared to Adams just then as one of the inexplicable but righteous besettings he must encounter in following that way. Oh, Lordy, Lord! He groaned and then as resentment moved him that dang boy dang idiot yet he knew himself for a greater idiot because he had not been able to tell walter the truth he could not bring himself to do it nor even to state his case in its best terms and that was because he felt that even in its best terms the case was a bad one of all his regrets the greatest was that in a moment of vanity and tenderness twenty-five years ago he had told his young wife a business secret he had wanted to show how important her husband was becoming and how much the head of the universe j a lamb trusted to his integrity and ability the great man had an idea he thought of branching out a little he told adams confidentially and there were possibilities of profit in glue what he wanted was a liquid glue to be put into little bottles and sold cheaply that kind of thing sells itself he said the kind of thing that pays its own small way as it goes along until it has profits enough to begin advertising it right. Everybody has got to use glue, and if I make mine convenient and cheap, everybody'll buy mine. But it's got to be glue that'll stick. It's got to be the best. And if we find how to make it, we've got to keep it a big secret, of course, or anybody can steal it from us. There was a man here last month. He knew a formula he wanted to sell me, sight unseen. But he was in such a hurry I got suspicious and I found he'd managed to steal it, working for the big packers and their glue-works. We've got to find a better glue than that, anyhow. I'm going to set you and Campbell at it. You're a practical, wide-awake young feller, and Campbell's a mighty good chemist. I guess you two boys ought to make something happen." His guess was shrewd enough. Working in a shed, a little way outside the town, where their cheery employer visited them sometimes to study their malodorous stews, the two young men found what Lamb had set them to find but Campbell was thoughtful over the discovery. "'Look here,' he said. "'Why ain't this just about yours and mine? After all, it may be Lamb's money that's paid for the stuff we've used, but it hasn't cost much.' "'But he pays us,' Adams remonstrated, horrified by his companion's idea. "'He paid us to do it. It belongs absolutely to him.' "'Oh, I know he thinks it does,' Campbell admitted, plaintively. "'I suppose we've got to let him take it.' It's not patentable, and he'll have to do pretty well by us when he starts his factory, because he's got to depend on us to run the making of the stuff, so that the workmen can't get on to the process. You better ask him the same salary I do, and mine's going to be pretty high." But the high salary, thus pleasantly imagined, was never paid. Campbell died of typhoid fever that summer, leaving Adams and his employer the only possessors of the formula, an unwritten one. And Adams pleased to think himself more important to the great man than ever, told his wife that there could be little doubt of his being put in sole charge of the prospective glue-works. Unfortunately, the enterprise remained prospective. Its projector had already become unveiled in another sideline, as he told Adams. One of his sons had persuaded him to take up a cough lozenge, to be called the Jalam Balm Troquie and the lozenge did well enough to amuse Mr. Lamb and occupy his spare time, which was really about all he had asked of the glue project. He had all the money anybody ought to want, he said, when Adams urged him. And he could start up this little glue side line at any time. The formula was safe in their two heads. 
At intervals Adams would seek opportunity to speak of the little glue sideline to his patron, and suggest that the years were passing, but Lamb, petting the other hobbies, had lost interest. Oh, I'll start it up some day, maybe. If I don't, I may turn it over to my heirs. It's always an asset, worth something or other, of course. We'll probably take it up some day, though, you and I. The sun persistently declined to rise on that day, and as time went on Adams saw that his rather timid urgings bored his employer, and he ceased to bring up the subject. Lamb apparently forgot all about glue, but Adams discovered that, unfortunately, there was someone else who remembered it. "'It's really yours,' she argued, that painful day when, for the first time, she suggested his using his knowledge for the benefit of himself and his family. "'Mr. Campbell might have had a right to part of it, but he died and didn't leave any kin, so it belongs to you.' "'Suppose J. A. Lamb hires me to saw some wood,' Adam said. "'Would the sticks belong to me?' "'He hasn't got any right to take your invention and bury it,' she protested. "'What good is it doing him if he doesn't do anything with it?' What good is it doing anybody? None in the world. And what harm would it do him if you went ahead and did this all for yourself and for your children? None in the world. And what could he do to you if he was old pig enough to get angry with you for doing it? He couldn't do a single thing, and you've admitted he couldn't, yourself. So what's your reason for depriving your children and your wife of the benefits you know you could give him? Nothing but decency, he answered, and she had her ready reply for that. It seemed to him that, strive as he would, he could not reach her mind with even the plainest language, while everything that she said to him, with such vehemence, sounded like so much obstinate gibberish. Over and over he pressed her with the same illustration on the point of ownership, though he thought he was varying it. Suppose he hired me to build him a house. Would that be my house? He didn't hire you to build him a house. You and Campbell invented. Look here. Suppose you give a cook a soup-bone and some vegetables and pay her to make you a soup. Does she got the right to take it and sell it? You know better. I know one thing. If that old man tried to keep your own invention from you, he's no better than a robber. They never found any point of contact in all their passionate discussions of this ethical question, and the question was no more settled between them now that Adams had succumbed than it had ever been. But at least the wrangling about it was over. They were grave together, almost silent and an uneasiness prevailed with her as much as with him. He had already been out of the house to walk around the small green yard, and on Monday afternoon he sent for a taxicab and went downtown, but kept a long way from the wholesale section where stood the formidable old oblong pile of lamb and company. He arranged for the sale of the bonds he had laid away, and for placing a mortgage upon his house, and on his way home, after five o'clock, he went to see an old friend a man whose term of service with Lamb and Company was even a little longer than his own. This veteran, returned from the day's work, was sitting in front of the apartment house where he lived, but when the cab stopped at the curb he rose and came forward, offering a jocular greeting. "'Well, well, Virgil Adams. I always thought you had a sporty streak in you. Travel in your own hired private automobile nowadays, do you? Pampering yourself because you're still laying off sick, I expect.' "'Oh, I'm well enough again, Charlie Lore,' Adams said as he got out and shook hands. Then, telling the driver to wait, he took his friend's arm, walked to the bench with him, and sat down. "'I've been practically well for some time,' he said. "'I'm fixin' to get into harness again.' "'Bein' sick has certainly produced a change of heart in you,' his friend laughed. "'You're the last man I ever expected to see blowin' yourself, or anybody else, to a taxicab. For that matter, I never heard of you bein' in any kind of a cab, lessen it might be when you were pallbearer for somebody. What's come over you?' 
"'Well, I got to turn over a new leaf, and that's a fact,' Adams said. "'I got a lot to do, and the only way to accomplish it, it's got to be done soon, or I won't have anything to live on while I'm doing it.' "'What are you talking about? What you got to do except to get strong enough to come back to the old place?' "'Well,' Adams paused, then coughed, and said slowly, "'Fact is, Charlie Lore, I've been thinking likely I wouldn't come back.' "'What? What are you talking about?' "'No,' Adams said. "'I've been thinking I might likely kind of branch out on my own account.' "'Well, I'll be doggoned.' Old Charlie Lore was amazed. He ruffled up his grey moustache with thumb and forefinger, leaving his mouth open beneath, like a dark cave under a tangled wintry thicket. "'Why, that's the doggonest thing I ever heard,' he said. "'I already am the oldest inhabitant down here, but if you go, there won't be anybody else of the old generation at all. What on earth are you thinking of going into?' "'Well,' said Adams, "'I'd rather you didn't mention it till I get started. Of course, anybody'll know what it is by then, but I have been kind of planning to put a liquid glue on the market.' His friend, still ruffling the grey moustache upward, stared at him in frowning perplexity. "'Glue,' he said. "'Glue?' "'Yeah. I've been sort of milling over the idea of taking up something like that.' "'Handling it for some firm, you mean?' "'No, making it. Sort of a glue-works, likely.' Lore continued to frown. "'Let me think,' he said. "'Didn't the old man have some such idea once himself?' Adams leaned forward, rubbing his knees, and he coughed again before he spoke. "'Well, yes. Fact is, he did. That is to say, a mighty long while ago he did.' "'I remember,' said Lore. "'He never said anything about it that I know of, but seems to me I recollect we had sort of a rumour around the place, how you and that man—let's see, what wasn't his name Campbell, that died of typhoid fever?' Yeah, that was it. Campbell. Didn't the old man have you and Campbell working some sort of private on some glue proposition or other? Yes, he did, Adams nodded. I found out a good deal about glue then, too. Been working on it since, I suppose. Yes, kept it in my mind and studied out new things about it. Lore looked serious. Well, but see here, he said. I hope it ain't anything the old man'll think might infringe on whatever he had you doin' for him. You know how he is, broad-minded, liberal, free-handed man as walks this earth, and if he thought he owed you a cent he'd sell his right hand for a pork-chop to pay it, if that was the only way. But if he got the idea anybody was trying to get the better of him, he'd sell both his hands, if he had to, to keep him from doing it. Yes, at eighty he would. Not that I mean I think you might be trying to get the better of him, Verge. You're a mighty close old codger, but such a thing ain't in you. What I mean— I hope there ain't any chance for the old man to think you might be. Oh, no, Adams interrupted. As a matter of fact, I don't believe he'll have ever thought about it at all. And if he did, he wouldn't have any real right to feel offended at me. The process I'm going to use is one I expect to change and improve a lot different from the one Campbell and I worked on for him. Well, that's good, said Lore. Of course, you know what you're up to. You're old enough, God knows. He laughed ruefully. My, but it will seem funny to me. Down there with you gone. I expect you and I both been getting to pretty much deadwood in the place, the way the young fellows look at it, and the only one that'd miss either of us would be the other one. Have you told the old man yet? Well, Adams spoke laboriously. No, no, I haven't. I thought, well, that's what I wanted to see you about. What can I do? I thought I'd write him a letter and get you to hand it to him for me. My soul, his friend exclaimed. Why on earth don't you just go down there and tell him? Adams became piteously embarrassed. He stammered, coughed, stammered again, 
wrinkling his face so deeply he seemed about to weep, but finally he contrived to utter an apologetic laugh. I ought to do that, of course, but in some way or other I just don't seem to be able to. I can't manage it. Why in the world not? the mystified Lore inquired. I could hardly tell you, lesson it is to say that when you've been with one boss all your life it's so kind of embarrassing to quit him. I just can't make up my mind to go and speak to him about it. No, I got it in my head a letter's the only satisfactory way to do it, and I thought I'd ask you to hand it to him. Well, of course I don't mind doing that for you, Lore said, mildly. But why in the world don't you just mail it to him? Well, I'll tell you, Adams returned. You know, like that, it'd have to go through a clerk and that kind of secretary of his, and I don't know who all. There's a couple of kind of delicate points I want to put in it. For instance, I want to explain to him how much improvement and so on I'm going to introduce on the old process I helped to work out with Campbell when we were working for him, so as he'll understand it's a different article and no infringement at all. Then there's another thing. You see, all during while I was sick he had my salary paid to me. It amounts to considerable I was on my back so long. Under the circumstances, because I'm quitting I don't feel as if I ought to accept it, so I'll have to have a check for him in the letter to cover it and I want to be sure he knows it and gets it personally. If it had to go through a lot of other people, the way it would if I put it in the mail, why, you can't tell. So what I thought, if you'd hand it to him for me, and maybe if he happened to read it right then or anything, it might be you'd notice whatever he happened to say about it, and you could tell me afterward. All right, Lor said. Certainly, if you'd rather do it that way, I'll hand it to him and tell you what he says. That is, if he says anything, and I hear him. Got it written? No, I'll send it around to you the last of the week. Adams moved toward his taxicab. Don't say anything to anybody about it, Charlie, especially till after that. All right. And, Charlie, I'll be mighty obliged to you, Adams said. And he came back to shake hands in farewell. There's one more thing you might do. If you ever happen to feel like it... He kept his eyes rather vaguely fixed on a point above his friend's head as he spoke, and his voice was not well controlled. I've been... I've been down there a good many years, and I might not have been so much use lately as I was at first, but I always tried to do my best for the old firm. If anything turned out so's they did kind of take offense with me down there, why, just say a good word for me, if you happen to feel like it, maybe. Old Charlie Lore assured him that he would speak a good word if the opportunity became available. Then, after the cab had driven away, he went up to his small apartment on the third floor and muttered ruminatively, until his wife inquired what he was talking to himself about. "'Old Verge Adams,' he told her. "'He's out again after his long spell of sickness, and the way it looks to me, he'd a better stayed in bed.' "'You mean he still looks too bad to be out?' "'Oh, I expect he's getting his health back,' Lore said, frowning. "'Then what's the matter with him? You mean he's lost his mind?' "'My goodness, women do jump at conclusions!' he exclaimed. "'Well,' said Mrs. Lore, "'what other conclusion did you leave me to jump at?' Her husband explained with a little heat. People can have a sickness that affects their mind, can't it? Their mind can get some affected without being lost, can't it? Then you mean the poor man's mind does seem affected? Well, no, I'd scarcely go as far as that, Lore said, inconsistently, and declined to be more definite. Adams devoted the latter part of that evening to the composition of his letter a disquieting task not completed when, at eleven o'clock, he heard his daughter coming up the stairs. She was singing to herself in a low, sweet voice, and Adams paused to listen incredulously, with his pen lifted and his mouth open, as if he heard the strangest sound in the world. 
Then he set down the pen upon a blotter, went to his door and opened it, looking out at her as she came. "'Well, dearie, you seem to be feeling pretty good,' he said. "'Where you been?' "'Just sitting out on the front steps, Papa.' "'All alone, I suppose.' "'No. Mr. Russell called.' "'Oh, he did.' Adams pretended to be surprised. "'What all could you and he find to talk about till this hour of the night?' She laughed gaily. "'You don't know me, Papa.' "'How's that?' "'You never found out that I always do all the talking.' "'Didn't you let him get a word in all evening?' "'Oh, yes. Every now and then.' Adams took her hand and petted it. "'Well, what did he say?' Alice gave him a radiant look and kissed him. "'Not what you think,' she laughed, then slapped his cheek with saucy affection, pirouetted across the narrow hall and into her own room, and curtsied to him as she closed her door. Adams went back to his writing with a lighter heart, for since Alice was born she had been to him the apple of his eye, his own phrase in thinking of her, and what he was doing now was for her. He smiled as he picked up his pen to begin a new draft of that painful letter but presently he looked puzzled. After all, she could be happy just as things were, it seemed. Then why had he taken what his wife called this new step, which he had so long resisted? He could only sigh and wonder. Life works out pretty peculiarly, he thought, for he couldn't go back now, though the reason he couldn't was not clearly apparent. He had to go ahead. End of chapter 16